Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories, talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson. Thanks for joining us today. Not only do we have a fellow podcaster joining us for this episode, but following Brian Willis in episode 15 and Dan Frazier in episode 24, it's the third time we've welcomed a guest from our distinguished neighbors to the north up in Canada. But before we bring our guest in, let me introduce you to the maverick, to my goose, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? But buddy, I'm good. It is kind of interesting that, that we've gone north of the border now. This will be time three. Yeah. Maybe it's appropriate for this time of year, too. You know, I've, that makes us uh, more... I don't know, we have a prestige about it. We're international now, you know? Yeah, that's a good word, isn't it? International? <laughs> it makes us sound much, I mean, <laughs> much bigger than we actually are, aren't we? Well, it's like saying host and co-host mm-hmm. and executive producer and all that kind of stuff. And titles. Uh, wait, I, I, IMDB page yep. and, and all that kind of stuff. It just adds so much to it. Yep. You, you know, I am excited about our guest today. Uh, I'm excited to talk to him. Uh, whenever I do get the chance to interact with him, mainly at conferences, I'm always energized after listening to him and this guy has so much energy he's so excited about training and training law enforcement and i'm excited that our listeners get to hear him today so what can you tell us about our guest our guest today is the managing director and founder of the islet network that's a community-based training platform designed for creating and facilitating international law enforcement training he's a former infantry officer platoon commander and training officer with the canadian armed forces back in july 2020 he created the international law enforcement training summit the third annual of which is coming up December 5th through the 9th. And since 2019, he's been the host and producer of the Tactical Breakdown podcast, which gives an in-depth look at training, tactics, and technology used by today's top law enforcement, military, and security experts. Please welcome in Mr. Adam Kanakin to the podcast. Hey, Adam, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on uh, the show today. Adam and I, we actually met at ILEDA several years ago, and we've kind of uh, forged a friendship. We ran into each other this year at ILEDA and then NAFTO. I always enjoy the conversations that I have with you because you bring a unique perspective to things, to training in law enforcement. And that's what I want to kind of talk about today. But before we get there, you started your public service career uh, in the Canadian military. Is that correct? That's right, man. So, so tell me about your job there. Wait, before you tell me about your job, why did you join the military? What led you down that path? I think like most of us growing up, um, I uh, was always fascinated with the military. Loved doing the uh, army men in the sandbox, right? I mean, I think that's a standard, right? Setting up defensive and offensive oh, yeah. positions, all of that kind of stuff when you had no idea what you were doing, but was always fun. But I think that the one thing that you could probably take as a constant across the board is that just the call to service, right? It's you just there's something kind of inside you that's just like, I really feel like I should be doing this. And that was why. And uh, I jumped in early on up here in Canada at the time that I had joined. We had uh, we had quite a few programs that assisted with post-secondary education. So at the time, there was actually a program running and it was called Continuing Learning uh, Education Program or something to that effect. But the idea was, so in the Canadian forces, and I, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent up to speed with the U S but in the Canadian forces to be an officer, you have to have a post-secondary degree. That's a right. bare minimum. And so, and then if you want to do anything major or above, you have to have a graduate 
and and so on and so forth. So the concept was with this program, because I was already in university at the time. So I was competing very high level track and field doing pole vaults at the University of Saskatchewan in psychology and uh, kinesiology as a joint major and uh, just really enjoying my time. And then I jumped into the forces and basically the plan was was every for every year that you spent uh, in school, you had to dedicate two years to the to the service. So I essentially we had a minimum contract length, but obviously that didn't matter. We started there. I jumped in. I was a I read I signed up as a uh, infantry officer. That was my very first uh, MOS. And uh, that's pretty much where I stayed my entire career. And in fact, when I left, um, they tried to have me transfer to a different uh, trade. I told them where they could shove that <laughs> idea and, uh, and left. So it's interesting because uh, we had uh, Dan Frazier on here uh, a few episodes ago, who also was uh, in the infantry in the Canadian forces. And uh, a lot of people don't know this about me, but uh, I, I joined uh, here in America and I was also infantry. But but it, it's it's one of those things because people often say, why in the world? Would you want to be in the infantry? And and I always said, why wouldn't you want to be in the infantry? <laughs> right? What do you want me to sit in a vehicle? No thanks. And God bless them because goodness knows we need them, right? I don't want to repair trucks. I don't want to do mess hall stuff. When you were a kid and you were out in the woods playing army, nobody ever played truck driver. You know what I mean? It was always I want to be I want to be the guy with the guns. I'm going to be the supply sergeant. (laughs) What? I'm going to be I'm going to be in the rear with the gear. That's where I'm going to be. That's right. Hey, looking back on it now, though, with the plethora of injuries I have um, probably would have been the smarter long term choice for sure. But you don't you don't think of that at the time. No, no, because you're thinking again of service, but you're also thinking of the adventure side of things. You were an officer then. And, and if I'm not mistaken, doing my research, at some point, you also became the training officer for your unit. How, how did that one come about? Yeah, I did. I was. I ended up getting tasked as the, the training officer for our regiment. It was really interesting. So I was uh, reg force full-time, kind of in a training cycle, and uh, we were doing dismounted platoon ops um, in this massive training area. For those that don't understand, uh, Gagetown, New Brunswick, which is where the main training base for uh, Canadian Forces Army is, it's the largest training base in the Commonwealth. So it is ginormous. There's a lot of different groups there. We have the Combat Training School. Um, we have the Infantry School there. We have 2RCR, which is one of our main infantry regiments, is located right there as well. We have a bunch of different stuff happening. At the time, we were running this this field X, and Armored had just run through and done a two week training through the same area, and it was real. And for those who aren't familiar with Eastern Canada in the in the spring, it is pretty much just all mud. And uh, and so what happened was they had run through, and obviously the tanks and the labs and everything created these nice tracks in the uh, in the ground and now we're running dismounted platoon attacks through the same field and so because obviously uh if anybody here who's ever known me or knows i let like i don't have an off switch so it's it's all go no stop <laughs> and so i'd taken up we it was a it was a it was an officer training course and so all of us were were officers so everybody gets to pick up the slack so i was i was actually the the c9 gunner with our section at the time. And so I had a ruck full of stacked full of, uh, uh, I had like three or four cans of belts 
ammunition for the the gun and everything and we're running and uh i ended up slipping and i fell into a tank rut and um my hip stayed on one side of the rut because for those of you who aren't familiar about how about why the tank track is it, it worked out perfectly so that my hips could stay on one side and my shoulders landed on the other and then all of the weight in my ruck went down through my spine and actually cracked my spine and so not a uh not a cool injury Obviously, we're in training, <laughs> but uh, lost feeling in my legs. I got Kazavac'd out. It was a pretty big deal. And uh, it took about a week for me to get feeling back in my legs. They thought I was paralyzed initially. It was a bad spot. Long story short, because of the rehab program, I actually switched to a reserve unit, which was in my hometown of Saskatoon. So we didn't have a reg force base in Saskatoon, but I wanted to go home to do all my recovery uh, because it was going to be an extensive recovery. And so I transitioned to the reserve unit, um, which is where I got my first tasking. So I got my first platoon. And then because it was a reserve unit, it, and I'm sure you're familiar, you kind of have bits and pieces all over the place. So you have way too many sergeants or you have not enough corporals or you have you have way too many platoon commanders. Like, you have all these people in all these different places. And because of my injury, obviously I can't be out on the field doing the, doing the groundwork and the training with the troops. So I took a step back, let one of the officers take the platoon and I slotted into this training role, um, which is what we needed. So I worked with our OPSO and got to be directly and intimately involved with the build out of the training for the entire regiment. Um, and so that was my first kind of, jump into the entire the training space where it wasn't just running a dt course or running a range or doing that kind of stuff it was hey you're used to doing the small stuff let's take 10 steps back look at the 10,000 foot level on how we make this work as a whole and that was really cool and so i had the opportunity to do that and uh when it came time for me to to jump back in my body wasn't ready to do it and the army was getting frustrated because i was kind of in this holding pattern and they're like screw it like let's move you they wanted to move me into uh, an into position and i was like no i quit <laughs> <laughs> so, so i was like if i can't if i can't do what i'm doing i want to leave and so uh i released and um that's that was the start of everything that you see now and uh it's been a wild ride since then want to tie some things in here if we could one of the things that i think the military has been doing well for a long time that we're getting better at in law enforcement, but we need to get a lot better is the whole concept of interleaving training, interleaving not only in topic, but in also disciplines. I mean, because the infantry does training with just the infantry and the armor does training with just the armor. But there's a point where they come together and they have these joint exercises because that's the way it's going to be, quote unquote, played if you're ever deployed. Tell me about your experience when you're talking about that larger, that 30,000 foot view. Logistically, it can be difficult to do interleave training between different groups in the military, can it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it's that's why I think it's so difficult, especially if we we dial it to today where we see the the law enforcement, the public safety training space and people are like, we understand the concept exists. It's just the implementation of the concept that people get stuck on. Like you had said, the military has a lot of experience bringing all of these different groups together in a certain way. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Right. I can speak to, for example, we did a domestic training op 
in the Arctic. What we did, we did a simulated aircraft disaster. Our regiment was actually part of a group called ARC-G, Arctic Company Response Group, which in makes no sense when you say it out loud. <laughs> but the concept is this. Obviously, in Canada, we have the entire Arctic to deal with. So we also have to do training exercises on, hey, what happens if the Russians come over? What happens if this, that, X, Y, and Z, right? Because we have to we have to be able to fight in all atmospheres and environments within Canada. Doesn't matter if it's on the water, if it's in the forest, if it's in deserts, which we do have. We also have the Arctic, we have tundra, we have all of these different environments that we work in. And so winter warfare was actually one of my specialties. I loved doing winter warfare training. Even to this day, like give me a hammock and a warm sleeping bag and I'll go stay out in the woods for a week. Like I love that kind of stuff. This exercise we ran was a joint operation where we simulated an aircraft disaster. So they actually took a C-130 and they dumped a bunch of mannequins like dummies out of it. And basically it simulated like, hey, here's the um, debris field, right? And we had to do body recovery. And at the place that we were at from a uh, from a map perspective, it was a military response. It wasn't a law enforcement response. It wasn't a SAR team response. It was a military response. And so we spooled this up and it was coordinated. I think we had 14 different groups associated with it. So it started with the the Pathfinders. So we have Pathfinders. They're very, very high level folks. They jumped in first. They did the recce on it. Then they had 3VP out of Edmonton. They had their entire company do a jump, right? So they, they did a full jump in and they identified and, and set up the area. And then we came in as a support element with sleds and setting up CPs and setting up comms nets and setting up all of the the stuff on the back end to facilitate the um, body recovery and to facilitate the the reg force company, which is was three VP at the time, to actually do all of their work. Obviously, we had you know SIGs. We had the entire we had so many support units. I can't even name them all. Right? We had our units. We had armor. We had everybody that was there, and uh, it was a massive undertaking. And then embedded in all that which is something that would be cool to talk about as well, was all of the Comrel events that took part at the same time. And for those who don't understand Comrel, Comrel is just short for community relations. But because where we were stationed, we were now interacting with the local populace in that area. And so we are setting up because we needed a, obviously because it's a training exercise, we try not to kick ourselves in the dick too much. And so we had access to a, a small town and in that town. So we use them for, for different resources and we financially supported them as well. So we waited, if there was stuff we could procure there, we did that to support their economy. We did these Comrel events where we'd go up there and we did like cool things where we, they did a dinner for us. So the command staff that was there, they brought us all in and we did a dinner. So they fed us all the local delicacies. So we ate polar bear and we ate uh, like whale and Arctic char and seal and all of the, the, the local delicacies, which some are good, some not so good. Um, I still can't get the, the thought and feeling of chewing whale blubber out of my head. And that was many, many years ago. But it's a really interesting experience. And I think also we can come back to that example later on when we start talking about how we train police and how we should be integrating communities in that training, which is a very important conversation. From the military's perspective, coordinating all of those people, because we had hundreds and hundreds of military members on the ground, all with their own jobs, what they had to do, what they were doing. It was kind of a trial by fire, right? It was training, but at the same time, it was, hey, this is how it's going to work in real life, so make it work. So if it's broken, I don't want to just hear that it's broken and, hey, you know, all stop, reset. It's 
it fix it. <laughs> but, but but it's a lot easier to do that though in that type of environment than than waiting for when you have a real debris field and realizing, hey, you know what? These two pieces don't work very well together. Well, and then, you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff too, you have to start talking about mass casualty response. And there's a whole forensic component that would come into that into play. If that was like, we had a a very extensive training event. We could have added so much more, right? Yep. Because the the whole bag and tag component of a a mass uh, casualty incident is something that's very regularly overlooked and a massive component to what we're doing, right? Because this finger goes with this hand, which goes with this arm, which goes with, you know what I mean? Like, yep. it gets very, very complicated very, very quickly. Long story short, it's a great example of how we can bring multiple units together to do training. Like you had said, interleaving, I think, is starting to be, I had this conversation with Bill Lewinsky, actually, just yes, uh, not yesterday, the day before. Interleaving as a as a buzz term is really starting to get used a lot. The problem is that people don't understand the concept behind what it actually is. Yep. Right? It's integration. It's taking multiple pieces and contextualizing them to one common goal. And there's and there's a difference. A lot of people think it's just taking um this from over here and this piece from over here, and we're just gonna put them together and train it. And it's like that doesn't work either. And so you have to be careful with using terms like interleave because if you don't understand it, again, then we got to start talking about training scars and we start going down that rabbit hole. So military is great. At the same time, we do have a lot of shortcomings with the military. The military, as you're aware, has a very specific way of doing things. And if you don't do it the way the military likes, usually you're getting called into somebody's office and getting extra duty. So again, <laughs> that's again, I, I, I made a joke the other day, my buddy, and I said, I was duty officer most of my career and it was because i don't have you know this and and probably anybody who's listening to this podcast that knows me and and i let i don't like going step by step if i know ceo bob over here or colonel or general so-and-so over here is going to be the end of the day the one who rubber stamps my request i have a very hard time sending that up and waiting 10 weeks to get that information i just go right to the person and ask right and so in the corporate world, that's okay. In the military world, not so much. So I would regularly walk into my CEO's office. He got used to it, but at the same time, it's just like, so you just decided to skip your entire chain of command again there, Kanakin. Again. <laughs> yeah, sir, I understand that, but you have to understand this is time sensitive. <laughs> like, yep. like, let's get this done. I just need a yes or a no. I'll take care of the rest of the paperwork. Usually it was a yes, but I, again, it came with, uh, it came with some uh, caveats for sure. The, the military is much different in some, uh, some ways from law enforcement, but in other ways, it's very similar in that a lot of time is spent on how to do something. There's a lot of time training on how to shoot and how to shoot well. I, I like the technical skills. There needs to be more emphasis in many cases on when. I should be shooting. The word used was contextualized. It's like, hey, you know what? When I provide the context for what's going on, there's a whole variety of things that add to how and when I should do this. And you guys up north, you understand it better than most. The weather plays a part in this. Your response is going to be much different in May than it is in January. Same job. But the response will be different because the context has changed. You know, there's two different things, two different rabbit holes we can jump down on this one. One is articulation of events. The other, like you had said, is the why. 
So we can we can touch on both. But let's start with why, which I and I said that intentionally because start with why I picked up what you is did the there. title of a book by uh, Mr. Simon Sinek. Um, and if nobody has, who's listening to this has read that book yet, go on Amazon and buy it right now. Absolutely. It's a phenomenal book, but it talks about the the why. Why do we do things, right? And uh, I told you this before what, offline, but when I started the Tactical Breakdown podcast, that was the concept behind the podcast was you go out on the range and you do this really cool drill that's been set up for you. And it takes like two minutes to run through the drill, right? And you're like, man, that was awesome. I feel like I got a lot out of it. Can I do it again? And then you do it again. You're like, that was great. I got more out of it. Let's do it again. And then you do it again. And you get more out of it. And you're like, wow, this is phenomenal. The end user sees the two minutes. I want to go back and I want to talk about the 80 hours that went into building the two minutes, right? And so that concept that you just brought up there is so critical for instructors specifically. There's nothing worse than going to a course and putting your hand up and then the instructor being like, go ahead. And you go, I, and you ask your question and the instructor goes, either I don't know, like, no idea doesn't matter, which is usually the worst. Like no idea is a completely fine response when you tack on the it doesn't matter or don't worry about it or insert buzz line here. That's where you lose all connection with learning. Instructors need to be trained that if you don't know the answer, that's still OK. But it's the onus is now on you to get the answer so that you have it for that student and you relay it to them when you can. And also, so you have it for the next time and it goes, it becomes an arrow in your quiver, right? So the why behind what we do is so critically important. I had a conversation with another instructor the other day. I won't divulge who it was because it was more of a, a sidebar thing. But in the conversation, he asked, if you had to train an officer in one thing, that's it. That's all you have. It's brand new person. Hey, this is Jeff. We just swore Jeff in. He is now a police officer. You can, you have one day and he's going on the street. What are you doing? right? Now, people's minds will go, okay, well, what are some of the fundamental things that he needs to know, right? I mean, does he need to know firearms? Does he need to know how the radio works? Does he need to da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? All of these things. And I said, you know what? It's just so much simpler than that. It is so much simpler than that. If I had one thing that I could walk somebody and talk somebody through, it's critical thinking and decision-making. That's it. Because everything falls underneath that umbrella, Right? Take firearms as a great example. Like you brought that up, right? Like, so we have qualifications and we have training. Usually those are conflated very heavily in our industry, which is very frustrating. But firearms training in itself, if we look at the statistics and we look at the data, and and I'm going to be somewhat hyperbolic on this because I don't have the information in front of me. So if I get this, um, if I'm off by a little bit, listeners, please don't get upset <laughs> with me. But the idea is if we look at the average for engagement distance for law enforcement when it comes to firearms, right? It is relatively close, within 10 feet usually. If we look at the hit versus miss ratio on that as well, overwhelmingly, we hit what we're shooting at within that 10 feet. So where do all of these incidents go wrong? With OIS incidents, with misidentifying threats or weapons, all of these different things. When the officer is justified and reasonable in taking a lethal force action against a suspect, 99.9999% of the time, they hit what they're shooting at, right? So in my mind, I go analytically, I say, well, if when they're supposed to shoot them, they hit them, then why are we so focused on, hey, you need to be able to, to put this in the 10 ring at 30 yards, standing, kneeling, and prone? Yeah, but why? Why at 30 feet or 30 meters, 30 yards, whatever it is, when, <laughs> when we know the engagement distance is going to be so much closer? 
I'm not getting into the the the, the concept of why we train at distance mm-hmm. and all of that other stuff. Well, that's all this what I'm trying to bring up here. What I'm trying to say is the issue that officers have isn't that they didn't hit what they were shooting at. It's that they shot sh- something that they shouldn't have. It's not the accuracy. The accuracy very rarely gets us into trouble or, that's or lack of accuracy. And nobody talks about that, right? Nobody talks about that. And I get it because if I'm a firearms instructor, I'm like, I just want more time on the range and more bullets. Yep. Right. I get that. I'm a trainer. If I, you and I have had this conversation offline. If I could spend the rest of my life and I let becomes its own entity and it's running and it's smooth and I can just be an instructor and I can just spend one week teaching and one week learning and one week teaching and one week. If I could do that for the rest of my life, I would be the happiest person in the world. Unfortunately, (laughs) probably not a reality at at the moment anyways. So, but the concept being is I understand why instructors, why we lean into our areas and why we do that. But the, the larger conversation is if I'm teaching an officer on a firearm, do I necessarily care if they can hit a target at 25 yards with one hand, with one eye closed in the dark after they spun around five times? No, I don't care. What I care is if they should have pulled the trigger or not, and they knew how to identify. And if they've identified that I need to pull this trigger, that they can articulate. Now we're going into the other conversation. They can articulate the circumstances surrounding their decision. Because it comes down to the articulation of that decision, right? Back way back in the day, when we, when I used to do a lot of private security work, we did a lot of work with uh, security officers, security training companies, and and private entities up here in Canada. I would spend so much time in classes and use of force classes on the articulation component. One, because as a civilian, you fall under. In, in Canada, anyway, you fall under a different section of the Charter Charter of Rights and the Criminal Code of Canada, um, more specifically, as to what I'm, actions I'm allowed to take, because I'm not a sworn peace officer. I'm a civilian, so I fall under Section 494, not 495 of the Criminal Code. And so anyways, long story short, nobody probably cares about our criminal code. But <laughs> the idea is that person has to be able to articulate exactly why they did it, right? The why. And so you had brought up, I'll abbreviate this quickly to give an example, but you talked about weather, right? And so can the officer articulate what the environment that they were working in was like, right? Okay. So let's say it is summer. Here are some key contributing components. Um, Is it light or is it dark? Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? Is it dusk? Is it dawn? Is there external lighting through street lights, external lighting through vehicle lights, external lighting through your flashlight or external lighting on the subject themselves? What is the visibility like? Is it foggy? Is it raining? Right? Is it snowing? If it's in the summer, it's not snowing, but you know, from an environmental perspective, what's going on with the weather? If it is during the day, right? Where are you standing? Are you on gravel? Are you on concrete? Are you on grass? If you're on grass, did it just rain? Are you inside? Are you outside? If you're inside, are you on wood? Are you on tile? Are you on carpet? If you're on tile, is it wet? Are your boots wet? Because you came inside and it was raining outside and you have water on your boots. Now you're on a tiled floor environment inside of a mall or a business. Are you going hands-on with somebody? If you are going hands-on with somebody and all of these environmental things come into play, what is my footing, right? How long did it take me to get there? Did I run to this situation or did I walk? What's my heart rate? What is my respiration rate? What is my level of exertion, right? My ATP PC system that I have 
have I exerted all of that immediate energy dump that I have available to me in that first 30 to 45 seconds? And now I'm running on a different energy system within my own body. Does the officer understand that and understand the physiological response to that? Do they understand stress? Do they understand stress response? Do they understand fear? Do they understand how our mind works? Do they understand perceptual narrowing? Do they understand all of those different types of things that happen physiologically? Can they articulate that in their environment? They're showing up. Is the suspect by themselves or are they with other people or the suspect themselves? Do you know them? Do you not know them? Did you look at your, your computer before you stepped out of your car? And does it says suspect is known to fight with us? Does that play into how you're going to interact with that person, right? Do they speak your language? Do they not speak your language? There's so many rabbit holes. You can go down off all these little things, but you get the idea. An officer needs to be able to articulate all of those components. We do it now in seconds. We make those decisions in seconds or fractions of seconds. You can go back afterward, look at it all you want, but we have to be able to determine all of those conditions and make an accurate assessment and choose the correct response in a fraction of a second. It is unfair to our officers that all we're doing is we're giving them the skill set and saying, here's the skill, and we give them no context on how and when to apply that skill. And if they do apply the skill, how do you articulate why you applied it? Do they understand why they did it? And sometimes it's okay if they don't understand why they did it. They just did it. That was their reaction. That was their gut reaction. And they that's how they say it. I just, I went with my gut. That's cool. Now it's our turn to step back in and peel it apart and walk them through so that they understand all of the components because they may not understand their own actions, explain it to them. And now the next time that situation occurs or something similar, now they have the ability to make better decisions. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy, because you deserve more. It's a great way of putting it in deference to my buddy Brent. You know, Brent's a musician. He's a fantastic guitarist. Trainers too often, if they were music teachers, they would be teaching people how to play a particular note. And then they would move on to a different note and they, they teach them how to play the note. But until the teacher goes and shows how to combine those notes and include things like tempo and all that type of stuff so that it creates this cohesive song, it really doesn't prepare them to be a musician at all. And part of the problem we have when training is, is that we have people that know how to do things. They just don't know when to do things. And they certainly don't know why they need to do those things. From a military perspective, most of the time when one of our, our troops get in trouble, when they pull the trigger, is not because of accuracy or lack of accuracy. It's an, a misunderstanding or a disregard of the rules of engagement. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's the way it is almost all the time with law enforcement. It's not the technical, it's the tactical side of things. Yeah, no, absolutely it is. And it's, you know, these are conversations I just love having because, I mean, of course, do I love going to the range? Do I love hitting the mats? Do we love the actual hands-on stuff? Of course we do, right? The biggest change that we're going to see 
in this industry as a whole. And the biggest effect that I can have as an individual instructor on an officer isn't here's all the high speed shit I can show you. It's, it's kind of like you, you go back, you go to any industry. I don't care if it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be law enforcement. You go to any industry. There's a core tenant in almost every single thing that we do as human beings. It is this very simply master the basics. Everything else comes from your ability to master the basics and understand and contextualize those concepts at the base level. If you think of it like a pyramid and your ability as an officer, as a pyramid at the top is the pinnacle of, of law enforcement, right? Fun fact, uh, hint, hint, no one's there, but at the pinnacle of this hypothetical pyramid is this is the best officer in the world that anybody could ever be. The only way to get there is to have a base. And the wider your base, the more you have dedicated to that base and building that base up, the taller your pyramid can be, right? And so if I try to rush things and I don't build a solid foundation that I'm going to be building up on now moving forward, there's no chance that you're ever going to get up to that top point. There's there, there's no chance. It's Something's going to fail along the way. So we have to take our time building out that base for officers, that core understanding. And I would say the ground on which this pyramid sits on is the entire decision-making concept, Absolutely. right? The critical thinking and decision-making concept. And so the ground has to be stable before you can even start building. Then you start building your skill sets, but we do it. We need to be doing it in a way that it is solid. Every single time we lay one of those bricks, whether it's de-escalation buzzword training, de-escalation training, or firearms training, or driving, or I and I, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Pick a topic. The idea is we're not spending enough time creating solid foundations, and we'd like to rush through things to try to build up as high as we can without realizing that we're never going to get as high as we can get if we rush the bottom. It's just like building a house. It doesn't matter how pretty the house is. If you don't have a solid foundation, if it's not built on ground that will sustain the weight of the house, it's not going to last long. It may look pretty for a minute, but it's not going to last long. When you got out of the military, uh, you started getting into this base, the law enforcement training space. Tell me about Islet. How did Islet come about? <laughs> Great question. No idea. Okay, so no, that, that's 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 only a half truth. Um, I would I would put my career now what Islet is and everything we've done i would chalk it up to right place right time i was always very 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 fortunate that i was introduced to the right people i was in the right room at the right time and um and there was a there was for sure a component of of luck to that and i don't discount that whatsoever and for anybody who says that you know you don't need those types of things to happen you do it's just, that's just the reality of it. And so um, I was also very, very fortunate. The The very first law enforcement um, instructor program, um, and it was not law enforcement specific, but was a PPCT instructor program way back in the day. Um, my very first instructor trainer was Brian Willis. And so for those of you who don't know who Brian is, he's one of the top instructors in the world. He is very, he is such a, an analytical mind. He's a phenomenal trainer and a mentor to so many people. And I had, I just so happened to be, he was the first person that I actually did an instructor course with. And so you can imagine where my standard was right from the very beginning. And so everything kind of fell from that, right? And so 
I was able to, at a very early on in my career, differentiate between high level training and kind of everything else. And so that was always the standard, which is what I started at. And then we've tried to just build on top of that. And so we started the podcast in 2019 and it was just a passion project. And it was just like, I just want to talk training. That was it. End of 2019, I had a conversation with a few folks and I said, I want to do something online. At the time, to give some context, my wife, again, uh, is a stay-at-home mom. She's phenomenal. Um, obviously, this doesn't exist without her. She wanted to do an online like wedding type. Th- she she comes from the hospitality space. That's where her post-secondary and stuff is in hospitality and all this kind of stuff. And um, she's like, I'd love to do stuff in like the wedding planning space. And so I actually spent a good chunk of my free time building out and developing an entire company in the wedding planning space for her. Part of that included building out an online summit in that niche. Obviously, nothing I knew about, but what I did know was I could learn this and put the pieces together for her. And so I learned all these skill sets. And then at the end of 2019, I go, you know, I wonder if I could do this for training. I wonder if I could find a bunch of folks that are willing to share their information and we can put it out to as many people as we can, like internationally across the world. Because you know this, and everybody listening to this understands that we work in silo in this industry, right? And there's a lot of red tape. And so a lot of people, it's like, even if if somebody wants to share, their agency says no, or their company says no, or not without X amount of price, or blah, 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 whatever the issue is, there's always a, a, there's always a catch. I wanted to say, let's, well, let's just tear off all the red tape and let's just give it people access to it for free which at the time was hilarious. And every time, every time I spoke to somebody, they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, that is stupid. They're like, listen, here, here is every single person who committed to that first event. If you can make it work, I'll do it, but there's no way you're going to make it work was the, was the sentiment. And so early 2020, we had the entire framework of the first ILET summit built. Obviously early 2020 COVID hits and uh, training shuts down across the board. There's nothing getting out. It just so happened that we had something already built that we could hit the gas on. And so July 2020, we ran the first International Law Enforcement Training Summit. It helped a lot that we had speakers on there like Dave Grossman and Tony Blauer and Tim Kennedy. And obviously, there's a lot more instructors within the law enforcement space, right? The Brian Willis's, the, you know, the John Bostains, those types of folks. But we were, we were kind of the only people in the game at that point. And so we ran the first summit. We had over 10,000 officers from 76 countries attend our first event which from going from nobody, not even being established, we weren't even a company. It was literally Adam in his basement building a website and saying, everybody come check this out. (laughs) And then from there, obviously, we've done a lot of different things. And we ran the second summit last year, and we're running the third summit this year in December. And uh, it's now become a thing. We have so many amazing industry partners. ILED is a community. It's not a company as much as it is a, it's a family. And, And I know that term gets thrown around a lot, but you, well, you know this when you and I have conversations offline. ILET doesn't exist without the Mike Warrens and without the John Bostains and without the Ilitas and the, you know, the the NAFTOs and all of these amazing organizations that are just doing the right things for the right reasons. And they understand that giving an hour of their time doesn't break the bank, that it's not going to destroy their business, that it's not giving away IP. We don't keep IP. If somebody teaches or does something for us, it's theirs. And if you want us to take it down, we take it down. Like the idea is so simple that I think that scared so many people off on it because they're like, what do you mean I can get training from Dave Grossman for free? What do you mean I get training from Tony Blauer for free? What do you like? They don't, it's like, I don't get it. 
what people don't understand is that the people that are the best at what they do, that are the ones that are leading their industries, that are doing the research, that are contextualizing the research, that are building out the tip of the spear when it comes to what is the most evidence-based practices that we have in training today, those people are the ones that are most willing to share their knowledge and experience. And, and that doesn't get talked about enough. Every single person who's connected with ILET, you could literally reach out to us and say like, hey, can you put me in touch with so-and-so? And I'll be like, sure, no problem. And I do an introductory email. And those people will be like, how can I help you? It is so crazy because you know this in this industry, it's it's very clicky, right? It's very, very high school drama-esque. He brought me a cold coffee to training five years ago, so now I don't work with him. Like, obviously that's an exaggeration, but the, the concept is, is that this industry for a long time has been competitively based. Everybody thinks that they're like infringing on other people's markets. And they're like, well, I don't want to work with them because they, they could potentially take business away from me. I had a really funny conversation um, and sort of just kind of ramble here, but I had a really funny conversation a year and a half ago. We did a, a town hall. I basically brought everybody in that we could um, that's leaders in the industry. And I said, we're doing a closed door meeting, having a conversation about what is, the, and this was, so this was January, 2021. What's happening right now? Because obviously everything was still shut down. It was a giant cluster. I told everybody, I said, listen, we need to start collaborating or people's businesses are going to go under. We started collaborating with a lot of folks and the folks that didn't collaborate. Unfortunately, I know a lot of people, um, I'm sure you know some, whose training businesses just did, weren't able to sustain sustain it when we shut down in-person training because they didn't have a dip, they didn't have a way to, they couldn't transition fast enough, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, it, it speaks to the value of collaboration and community. And so the whole purpose behind ILET is there's officers that like, look at the US, right? There's over 17,000 agencies and a very high percentage of those are small agencies, 25 officers or less. Correct. They don't have resources that NYPD has, that LAPD has, that Memphis or Houston or Kansas City, they don't, or federal entities, right? They don't have those resources. So what do they do? They rely on what they know. They rely on their instructors that taught them, that taught them. Maybe they have some friends within their, within their county or within their state that they reach out to, but that's usually where the communication ends. What we wanted to do was create a platform where it doesn't matter where you are, you go, hey, I'm really trying to build out a new program and use of force, or I'm having issues implementing this new case law that just showed up. And now we have a policy that says I can't put somebody on their back or whatever. They go, I don't know what to do. Well, that should never happen. There should be somewhere where you can go as a trainer or as an instructor or as an agency, as a chief, as a lieutenant, doesn't matter, and say, having a problem, where do I go? And with ILET, Fortunately, we've been able to bring everybody together so people can come in and say, hey, I have a question about this. And now you're not just getting the information from your immediate circle. You're getting information from 10 or 20 of the top subject matter experts in the world on that specific topic that you're asking. And that's a game changer because we've now opened the door to information and access to information, which in this industry, there's a, I don't think there's one cop that's out there right now that would argue that more information is, is a bad thing. It's funny because th that information you're talking about, that, that expansion of how far you're getting it from the variety of sources. I, I look at it in the medical world. You know, when there's research that's done, they don't hoard that stuff to themselves. They publish the results of their, their research in peer-reviewed journals. And then you have people trying to replicate what they did and they, they, they can ask questions and they can challenge it. And they don't take it as an affront. Because we need to make sure the stuff is correct. And I think that that sharing that you're talking about is so incredibly important. Tell me about the summit that's coming up in December. Yeah, the, the third annual ILET Summit. Uh, it's going to be taking place December 5th through 9th. 
It is completely free. You go in, you say, I'm interested, uh, get my ticket on the website, which is iletsummit.com. I'm sure there'll be links and stuff on here, but iletsummit.com. All you do is click register. You put in your name, your email. I think we also ask like kind of where you're from and what what's your job currently, just so that we can kind of see who's in what industry. So if you're law enforcement, you know, active or retired military, correction, security, academia, whatever it is, right? And uh, yeah, and then we you just get into our kind of network and we're going to let everybody in the, the week of. Um, and in fact, this year, we're actually launching our community platform. So not only will you get access to the summit, you're going to get access to the community component, which is what we've kind of been talking about here. And it's a, uh, they're linked together, but one is the training side of things where you get the hours. There's going to be over 31 hour training sessions. And then there's also going to be a live round table every day. So from noon till two central time every day, we're doing a live round table on a specific topic. So I think Monday we're doing active threat response. So active threat incidents. So active shooter, active threat and uh, prevention versus uh, response. So we have that going on. We have ones on use of force. We have ones on mental health. Um, we have one on training development. And then we're going to have one at the end of it on kind of an, an, a global look and specifically what's happening in Ukraine. One of the things that ILED is going to be launching, and, and this will be kind of the first time I mention it in a in a media setting, um, is on this podcast. But ILED's going to be launching a project with Ukraine to facilitate training to the Ukrainian National Police on ground level tactics for tactical medicine, tactical operations, urban movement, close quarter battle, situational awareness, things that those officers need right now because they are criminally undertrained, undersupplied, are getting the crap kicked out of them. And so we want to be able to support them as best as we can. Luckily, with ILET, within the last three years, we've accumulated some of the top experts in the world and trainers in the world, whether they're Canadian or U.S. military special forces or super high level operational folks in law enforcement space, federally, provincially or state. We're pooling all of those resources together and we're delivering it to Ukraine uh, for free. And we have a 501c3 that we have stood up in the U.S. so we can fundraise through a registered charity and all of that's going to go to uh to help those officers in ukraine right now because unfortunately a lot of people think that you know with all the money that's being fed to ukraine they're like well you know that's that's going to be it it's like of course they're going to be supported and that's just not how it works unfortunately that money goes a few different places it goes to humanitarian aid babies and blankets or it goes to the military it doesn't go to first responders and guess what there's millions and millions and millions of civilians in ukraine that need assistance from their police department from their fire department from their ems and what we want to do is support them the best we know we know how and that's through delivery of training and so that's going to be showcased at the summit as well yeah, it's just it's it's a great place to come in, get to see what's out there right now. We have some absolute killers in the training space. People that if you go on there, look at our list of speakers, the the names speak for themselves. The work you're doing in Ukraine, uh, when you and I talked the other day, I loved how you put it. So, you know, the folks over there, they're, they're trying to do an incredibly difficult job where they're performing law enforcement duties in the morning. And then that afternoon, they're having to go out on a combat patrol. It's an incredibly taxing and difficult situation for them to be in, uh, but we'll make sure we include in our show notes how people can contribute to that, how they can get involved in that endeavor right there, because I do believe that that's incredibly important. Uh, as we wrap things up right here, I love your passion for training. In order to be truly effective as a trainer, you had to be passionate. I'll ask you kind of the same question, just in a different way that uh, you were asked before. If you were put in charge of all police for a day, 
and you got to implement a policy regarding training, a topic specific, but if you could implement any, any policy whatsoever, what would you implement in order to make our people better and safer? The one thing that I think we need to do from a training perspective is look at other industries, look at other experts that aren't just the law enforcement specific experts that we're used to learning from and understand that billions and billions and billions of dollars have gone into understanding human performance, understanding a lot of different things around adult learning, around pedagogy, around how do we take information from one person's brain and put it into another person's brain. And it has nothing to do with law enforcement, has nothing to do with military or public safety. It is scientifically founded, evidence-based training delivery that we know exists. We need to start implementing that across the board and understanding that we don't know what we don't know. And the hardest thing right now, and I'm sure you're you're very acutely aware of this, there are a lot of instructors in the law enforcement space right now, um, and myself used to be one of them, where it was like, I know what I'm talking about. Why are you even talking to me? It's an attitude. It's a cultural shift that needs to happen. It's not going to happen quickly. It has to happen over time, and it has to be championed by people that understand the value of stepping outside of the box, of reaching out to experts in other arenas that may know something different. And not that you can wholesale throw away what you're doing and implement something different. That's not what I'm recommending. But I guarantee you, you have a conversation with somebody who's outside of your circle. They're going to have a piece of information for you that's going to assist you in either changing, critiquing, reevaluating, or implementing something new in the way that you conduct training within your own agency. And so that for me, get outside the box, open your mind up. And so in closing, I love having conversations with you and people like you because I love, and I didn't, I didn't used to be this way. I love the feeling of being challenged of somebody asking me when, when I state something, well, why Mike, why that and not this? Tell me why you're based. And I think we, we need to be willing to be challenged by others it's not personal. It's about making each other better. So I appreciate the work you're doing in this space. Uh, we're going to include in the show notes uh, the information that you provided about ILET for our listeners. I highly encourage you to go and check it out. I think that you're going to find the summit is going to be incredibly, incredibly valuable. It's worth your time. Adam, thank you so much for being with us today. We will definitely be talking again in the future. I appreciate you, brother, and we'll uh, we'll set it up so that you can come on our podcast and we can have this conversation again. Again, what's your podcast? Tactical Breakdown. Available wherever podcasts can be found. And we'll include links in the show notes for that as well. But thanks again for being on. All right, brother. Stay safe. Yeah, and like Mike said, we'll have all the links to the uh, uh, Tactical Breakdown podcast and uh, the ILET Summit, which is coming up in early December. All that, along with all the other ways to uh, find out more about Adam on our website in the episode page and you can also find past episodes of ours podcast providers and a whole lot more right there on our website find it all at between the lines with virtualacademy.com